Welcome to This Sustainable Life Untethered, the place where we explore mind, body and nature and the things that hold you back from enjoying them. I am your host and adventure partner, Alison, and I'm so excited to go and explore with you. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am super excited to introduce this week's episode, which is all about fashion and the impact of fashion on people and the planet. Our amazing guest today owns a fashion brand who were doing some really incredible things. Rather than just trying to minimize their impact on the planet, they're actually actively seeking to heal the earth and leave it in a better place than before they started. Given the responsibilities that we all have with regards to climate change, I think this is a very interesting topic to explore because it opens up the question of, can consuming, i.e. the thing that has actually contributed to this problem, actually be part of the solution? Hmm. There's also a really good intro into fashion and the fast fashion industry. So if you don't know much about that at all, I really didn't before I started, then um, I hope that that will be eye-opening for you. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. I am delighted to welcome Aras Bruschkowskis, co-founder and CEO of Christy Dawn. If you haven't heard of them, Christy Dawn is an amazing women's clothing company with a difference. Unlike many other brands which prize profit over caring about people or the environment, Christy Dawn pride themselves on being sustainable, ethical, and most recently and excitingly regenerative. So welcome, Aris. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to be really honest, first of all, and just say that I'm kind of quite new into my sustainability journey. And fashion is definitely a topic that I've wanted to cover on the podcast for quite some time. Uh, but I've also been sort of digging my head into the sand a little bit because I think sometimes you were in blissful ignorance. And when you start to know and uncover more about how the industry works, then you're forced to change your behavior. And it's that sort of thing that scares me a little bit. Um, but I think it is really important that we do difficult things and we look into things that scare us. And so in order to understand and appreciate how unique Christy Dawn is, I wonder if you can please give us just a bit of a primer as to how the fashion industry in general operates with regards to kind of making and selling clothes. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think the fashion industry and all industries in general um, I think there's, there's a word that is used to describe the way that people do business and it's supply chains, right? The way people interact with other people, the way people interact with other uh, beings that are non-human, right? We call it a supply chain. And, and the supply chain is typically intentionally bleached of relationships so that I can extract and exploit from these other beings, whether they're human or not, and I can sleep at night because I don't know who they are because there's no relationship with them. And I think that's true in many industries, not just in fashion. But I think if we looked at fashion, what you would see is you have farmers who are growing cotton conventionally using a lot of chemicals, a lot of pesticides, a lot of herbicides, because that's all that they really can afford to do, right? Because there is there is so much pressure on them 
Um, there's not a lot of money in farming to begin with, but there's so much pressure on them to get yield that they are forced to use more and more chemicals and pesticides, right? And they're doing this at scale, right? Um, where it's, it's huge tracts of land where, where, where soil is being depleted, land is being destroyed, chemicals are being introduced to ecosystems and to our water, um, all in the name of getting as much cotton grown for as cheap as possible. And it's not the farmer's fault, but that's the reality, the economic reality for the farmer, right? And so then the farmer then sells that cotton by the pound at a predetermined price, you know, or, or it's, it's determined every year as like a global commodity to the gin or to the mill where whoever it may be. And then that mill then is going to, the, the gin is going to gin it and it's going to be spun and it's going to be woven. Um, and, and, and then that, you know, after it's all that, all, all of that is done, then a lot more chemicals are going to be added to that cotton, um, which has now been woven to create these like printed fabrics. And then those printed fabrics, which already represent a ton of chemicals, by the way, conventionally grown cotton, they add a lot of chemicals to the ground, to the plants, insecticides, herbicides. But then once that plant is fully grown and all those cotton bowls are ready to be harvested, they add more chemicals to defoliate it. Like it's just a, it's a chemical heavy process. Right. Um, and then once you, and that's just for cotton, by the way, um, we can get into a whole nother conversation around other materials, um, which are no better. Um, but then, you know, once you've got that fabric woven, now you're going to add more chemicals to dye it, to print on it. Right. And then you're going to go send that fabric, you know, typically to factories, uh, oftentimes in Asia where people are paid almost nothing. It's basically slave-like wages. And that fabric is going to be cut and sewn by people who are making oftentimes less than a dollar a day um, and, and sewn in a way that the quality of that garment is not intended to last more than six months anyways. Um, and then offered up at prices that are typically, you know, uh, so low that the, the U.S. or not the U.S., but like kind of the Western consumer has come to expect, you know, clothing pricing to be you know, the, the price that, that, that the U.S. consumer expects really only allows for more exploitation and extraction, right? The only way to make a dress that is $50 at the retail level is to extract and exploit the earth and the people making it. And that's the reality of the world that we live in today. So, you know, when you think about big box retailers or you think about any company that's offering you a dress $50 or less, you can just about guarantee, unless it's a thrift store, you can just about guarantee that the earth has been extracted from and that people have been exploited. Right. And it's, this is exactly why uh, <laughs> it scares me because I do, you know, like a bargain, I guess. But when you start to fully understand, like you're saying, that supply chain and what it takes to make that bargain, um, it's, it's just horrific, really. So, it is. Now, here's the scarier thing. That's only for dresses that are $50 less. Just because you're spending more for a dress doesn't mean the earth was treated any better or that people weren't exploited, right? Because the name of the game, right, is maximizing profit for most of these companies. They're industries, right? They're, they have investors um, and, and they're maximizing profit. So just because that dress was $1,200, 
doesn't necessarily mean that the earth wasn't extracted from people still were paid slave wages. Maybe there's a few more processes. So maybe instead of that dress, you know, costing a dollar in labor to make, it could very well be made at the same factory Mm -hmm. as the dress that was $50. In fact, that happens often. Um, So, you know, it's, it's not just the $50 dress that is includes that. In fact, um, you would be shocked at some of the high uh, luxury, high ticket luxury items that include all that extraction and exploitation. Right. So price isn't really a useful heuristic. And unless the consumer properly researches into it to understand, well, if I pay for this, what am I getting? And I guess that can put a lot of people off because they don't want to, don't have the time, don't get around to doing it. Um, so why why do Christy Dawn, why have you chosen to put these values kind of front and center in your business in terms of that sustainable and ethical? What was the reason behind it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's interesting because we didn't start Christy Dawn with uh, any kind of intention of, of making a difference in the world. Neither Christy or I are environmentalists or activists. We started using fabric that was called dead stock fabric when we started our company because we couldn't afford to go to a mill and and order the minimums that they had dead stock fabric is the excess fabric from other fashion companies and right. usually sold um you know in small amounts because people don't tend to have a lot of it um there's and and but you know that was the gift for us when we started we didn't have any money we didn't know anything about the fashion industry or the textile industry it was strictly an economic choice but when we learned about the textile industry and how bad um, the impact is from creating new textiles, we were able to tell that story about like, hey, this is better for the earth than using new fabric, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and people really responded to that story. And it was like water on the seed of my childhood idealism that had died with adulthood, where <laughs> I thought it died. Perhaps it was just, you know, waiting to germinate. And so when, when we realized, hey, this is something that people really want, it, it, it kind of triggered that part in ourselves. This is something we want too. Let's keep pulling at the string. And for five years, we built our company only using dead stock fabric. And it felt good to say we're not part of the problem until it stopped feeling good because we realized we couldn't say we were part of a solution. Right. Just to feed off the excess of a toxic system is not the solution, right? You have to, you get to figure out a whole nother system. And so when we were about five, six years old as a company, we took on investors, which gave us the financial freedom to go explore what that would look like. Um, And so at the same time as that was happening, a friend of mine named Finian was starting an organization called Kiss the Ground, which focuses on soil health and regenerative agriculture. And they really at that time were focusing on regenerative agriculture as it relates to food production. Um, But then it occurred to me, oh my goodness, we don't just grow our food, we grow our clothes too. What would happen if we started growing our cotton regeneratively instead of just sustaining, instead of just not being part of the problem, what if we could become part of the solution? Um, And when that realization occurred, um, you know, it was like, all right, let's, let's see how we can do this. Um, and so the first thing I did was Google regenerative cotton and nothing came up because there was no one selling regenerative cotton, anything. Um, and so then the next thing I did was I, I Googled ethically grown cotton to see if I had any leads there. Um, and I found this organization called the Responsible Sourcing Network and I called them up and I said, hey, 
you know, my name's Addis. We have this clothing company and we're looking to grow our own cotton regeneratively. Any leads? They said, we don't have any leads for you, but we're losing some funding and we're going to have to let go of an employee. She's amazing. Maybe you want to meet with her. So I did. Her name's Marin Wilson. She's now our director of regenerative practices. And we sat and we talked about the vision of starting our own regenerative cotton farm and where that would be ideally. Um, and so I hired her to help make it happen. And her first phone call was to Rebecca Burgess from Fibershed. And she explained to Rebecca what we were looking to do. And Rebecca said, I don't really have much for you right now. A couple hours after that phone call, a man in Erode, India named Nishant was listening to a podcast that Rebecca had recorded months before. He guessed her email address and says, hey, I want to start my own organic cotton farm, but I'm looking for someone to partner with um, or a brand to partner with. So we literally found a needle in a haystack, like the level of synchronicity for that to happen still gives me when I think about it. And so um, we got together with Nishant, Rebecca put us together. She gave us a micro grant to um, install the uh, drip irrigation on the first four acres of our farm. And we agreed, like, let's, let's go beyond organic. Let's see what happens when we go regenerative and, um, and, you know, really begin to ask ourselves how we can be in a reciprocal relationship with the land, with the farmers, with each other. Um, and that was kind of the start to our journey. Um, and, and so far we have harvested um, 34 acres of land. We've launched our first farm to closet collection in May um, to great uh, applause uh, by our community. Um, and just recently we launched our land stewardship where we give people the opportunity to invest in the stewarding of land. So uh, $200 allows you to steward 3,500 square feet of land. And that includes all the regenerative uh, practices, um, includes the farmer's wages and all the processes that will lead to the sequestration of carbon. The first 24 acres sequestered 66 tons of carbon. The next 10 sequestered 44 tons of carbon, I believe. So wow. it's been really successful all the way around. And um, obviously big risk, you know, because when we're not paying for yield, we're paying for process. We're putting our money where our heart is. And, um, you know, if, if a, a, a cancel, cancel, but if a, a blight happens or a drought or a flood and we don't get any yield, the money we put up, it's, we, we're not getting anything back from it. And that's a huge shift, right? So rather than asking the farmer to take all the risk, Christy Dawn is saying, we'll take the risk. Um, and now we're inviting our customers to join us in that kind of risk reward shouldering of it. And so our, our, our customers who are investing in land, um, it's not just like a donation and it's not, it's not like some kind of philanthropic event. No, no, no. When you invest in the stewarding of that land, you will receive back at the end of the harvest um, we will buy back that cotton from you in the form of store credit at a predetermined price. So depending on the yield, depending on how nature, you know, responds to this reciprocity, you'll either get more back in store credit or less, and hopefully it's more, right? So we've, we've, we've tried to create these systems where not only are we able to um, be in reciprocal relationship with land, but actually bring our community involved in, into it as well. Recognizing there's no heroes in the story. There's no saviors in the story, but if we all participate, the world becomes a better place. God, I want to say so much, but firstly, I think it's so beautiful, the serendipity of the journey that you just started off and you basically were forced into 
one choice on your own economic constraints and how from that it's just grown and the the right people have turned up at the right time put themselves in front of you and I also really like the idea that you're using you know what are capitalist methods in terms of investing and having that land stewardship but to um, like you were saying you know to benefit everyone and uh, there's no kind of loser there so I think that's that's really exciting and when you said that um, with the regenerative cotton no one was doing it is that still the case now or were you guys the trailblazers? So I, I think you know not long after we started I believe Patagonia came out with some regenerative teas mm -hmm. um, their model was much different than ours. And, and I, I can't really speak to their model, but um, Patagonia has always kind of been a company that I think we've all admired um, for their work. Um, but certainly within our, uh, within women's fashion, certainly the trailblazers. Um, and I think the model that we've chosen is a lot different. Like we are not paying for yield, right? We are paying for process. And so I think that is, what differentiates Christy Dawn is that we're really saying like, no, we're going to, we're going to pay for this process and trust that, that if we are in a reciprocal relationship with mother earth, you know, take care of her, she'll take care of us kind of, kind of situation and take care of the farmer and they'll take care of us. Right. And um, on your website as well, you have documented it beautifully. I read a lot of the journal posts that have been written um, that say, you know, this is what the farm was like beforehand. And you just see it's like arid. There's nothing there growing. And then take us through kind of step by step exactly how you've done it, what you planted to such a degree where I found it really fascinating because I've been wearing clothes like, literally all my life and have never thought about what does the cotton life cycle, you know, plant look like? What does it look like when it flowers? What does it actually look like when it has the, the cotton bowl? I didn't even know that was a thing. And um, you talk about, you know, what um, other plants you've planted, which are natural kind of pest repellents. I found it really fascinating as someone who has no background or kind of... Uh, interest in farming I yeah it was really interesting I recommend everybody checks out the website just to go through and see and see that process yeah I think that was another big part for us was not just in educating the customer but also in documenting it so that other brands could quite literally just copy and paste right and um, because if we're the only brand doing it then we haven't succeeded right this is something that gets to happen at, um, at scale uh, with other brands. And I think like the real important part is really this is not a story of regenerative agriculture. This is a story of reciprocal relationships. This is a story of intimacy, right? The change was not made by shifting the way the farmer was with the land, although that there were changes made from that. The change is made by reimagining the relationship each one of us gets to have with each other, right? And so if every company in the world were to demand that their supply chain switch to regenerative agriculture, they would still figure out ways to extract and exploit. Mm. But if we begin to have a shift in consciousness and recognize that what is urgently needed and what we're invited to step into is reciprocity, whew, intimacy, oh my goodness, how beautiful, right? Like we get to be more intimate with our relationships with ourselves, with the earth, with each other. And in that, in those relationships is where we heal. 
I think I remember reading something as well where you introduced some of the people who are working on the farm um, and they say something along the lines of, oh, in the past, we've not met the the kind of the landowners or the people that we work for. So it's, you know, exciting for us to meet you. And because we've met you, like we're going to essentially try extra hard or, you know, make sure that, you know, you, you get a good kind of product and result. Um, and I guess it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, not treating people like commodities and actually like having that relationship benefit both of you. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, re even thinking about like the, you know, I, I, I like to think about this with any of the people on our team, it, re, re, whether they are um, actually employees or they are people we work with in any ways that nobody works for us. We're working together, right? Like there's this exchange of energy and we're all, we're all um, getting something out of it because if I'm working for you, that feels a little different right now I'm just doing what you want me to do. But if I'm working for me and the relationship is reciprocal, then we're all going to get something beneficial from it. It's really inspiring. Um, do you know what the rest of the fashion industry thinks about your method? There, I know you said like more companies are doing it now, but in general, I don't think any companies are doing what we're doing just yet. I think a couple right. companies, you know, like our partner in India, Nishant, um, he has grown the farm. So I believe uh, for um, fall of 2022, there's a couple more people. So I believe we have 40 acres and I think there's another 10 acres that are spread out across a couple smaller brands. Um, and then I know there's other companies that are trying their own kind of hand elsewhere, right? Um, so it's definitely something that is going mainstream uh, and, and it, it's growing, but it's still very much in its infancy for sure. And did COVID affect you at all? Because, um, well, obviously it affected everyone and I'm sure, you know, those, um, workers, the farms in India, et cetera, was one of the hardest hit places. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there were massive lockdowns in India and, mm -hmm. uh, our partner in India at Oshadi, he actually made the choice to go move to the farm so that he could ensure because our first plot was four acres and then we added 20 more acres um, just because of COVID, we, we weren't unable to get the cotton from that first four acres to market. So we just figured, hey, let's combine that with another 20 acres for the next harvest. Um, but yeah, it absolutely had an impact um, in terms of getting to market a little bit earlier. We, we would have liked to release the original farm to closet in late summer 2020, but ended up being a spring 2021 release. Um, but it was all good. And uh, yeah, um, I, think, I think COVID, you know, if I think about kind of, I, 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 you know, they, 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 it's called long haul COVID, people who have like long kind of negative reactions to it. But if we think about the long haul COVID um, uh, impact for Christy Dawn is that I think that people being stuck at home, people staring at their screens, people dying for intimacy, people dying for connection, people recognizing that we can't keep doing this, people seeing that um, we're not in right relationship with the earth. I think the long-term implications of COVID hopefully are gonna to lead to more of an awakening of why this is important and um, why we all get to, to 
yeah, find our own place on the regenerative spiral, you know? I hope so. I hope it's not that. And they're just sitting at home <laughs> on their screen, like boohoo.com, asos.com. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and that's the thing. Like I kind of think about Christy Dawn as um, the Trojan horse of fashion, right? We're like, we're a, a vehicle for transformation dressed up as a dress company. And my hope is that if we get you into our system, into our funnel, and maybe you come in as a consumer, but you're going to go out as a citizen, you're going to go out as as some as as a as a participant in the experience of building life right like ideally i want you to come in and think okay i need all these things all these things all these things and we give you a few things and we tell you how we made them and it maybe awakens to your own connection to the earth and then you say maybe i don't need as many things even from christy dawn and then maybe we spit you out a couple years later and maybe you're like yeah i'm good with maybe just one piece you know, as, as something kind of falls apart, maybe then I replace. Right. But like, if we do that and we can help awaken a different um, consciousness, then we've succeeded. Um, and I do believe that there's a lot of room to also, um, in, in any regenerative system, everyone benefits. Right. So there's enough people who are conscious, not who are unconsciously consuming for us to have a very long life for Christy Don to do what we do, right? And to support that. But I think our long-term vision as a company is that we think of ourselves first and foremost as land stewards, right? So right now we have 75 acres under our stewardship. And as we grow, um, my vision is that every single fiber of cotton, every single fiber period that we touch is um, received through reciprocal relationships with, with, with earth, with farmer, with rancher. Right. So right now, by my math, our cotton needs are about 250 acres a year. Right now we're at 75. Right. So can we get to 250 acres of land stewardship? And then as we grow, our growth gets justified because, yeah, the more we grow, the more land we can steward. Right. And so rather than sitting with uh, a bunch of other CEOs and, and bragging about how big our bottom line is, we can sit and brag about with other CEOs. Oh, look how much land we've stewarded whoa, oh, you, you sequestered that much carbon. Whoa, what a, what a community. Oh my God. Right. And kind of like redefining these like KPIs of success for companies and letting the ancillary benefit be profit because profit is not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. We should all get to have it, but all of us should benefit, not just a few, very few. I love that idea of like the carbon sequestration league table, who's doing best <laughs> and right. everyone like jostling for that first place. No, we're going to do better maybe <laughs> one day in the future. Um, so were there any times where you, cause you're talking about these reciprocal relationships and it benefiting everyone. And um, I guess it all sounds like almost too good to be true. Were there any times where you thought, Oh, this is actually really difficult. Or, you know, maybe we should do this the standard way or, you know, this is a real problem for us. And, and what was that? And how did you overcome it? Every single day to this day. <laughs> um, it, it costs more. It's riskier. Right. Um, but I think, you know, think about it like this. 40 acres. Right. It costs us about twenty five hundred dollars to steward an acre of land. We don't know the land. Sometimes that includes the lease. It's always the farmer's salaries. We always pay the farmers a real living wage. So we usually pay them around three times the average wage that farmers make in those areas. Um, wow. All the processes, it pays for all of that, right? But if, if we took 40 acres under our control, right? 
for this last, for what's going to come for fall of 2022. That's $100,000 that we're putting up here in 2021, right? Mm -hmm. And we're not going to see that until the fall of 2022, a year, right? That's a cash flow problem. <laughs> yeah. But think about the opportunity that we've it's created. Okay. We didn't do this because of the cash flow problem, but our land stewardship effectively is saying, like, look, we can't hold all the weight of this, of, of, of stewarding the land. And we know the gifts of stewarding the land. We know the intimacy that it has brought us with the earth. So we're going to invite our customers in to do it also. So now we've sold through 37% of those 40 acres in terms of land stewardship investments, right? So now instead of holding up 100% of that weight, we're only holding up 63% of that weight. And as we grow more, right? So the problem invites a solution. The problem is where you get to, like to your point about going to your fear, like you got to go right there. Okay, there's a problem. We got to address it. We have to be honest with ourselves. I have to be honest with myself. Like you know, where is the problem and can I face it with open eyes? And if I can, then that means that I will probably get to get to an opportunity because problems are just opportunities waiting to happen. You know, you've designed such a beautiful system. Like it's really impressive to see how everything's so interconnected and all works together. Um, I know you also do carbon neutral shipping and that you partner with like a clothes um, recycling, upcycling company. Is there any impact, whether that's environmental or otherwise, that you are not able to mitigate in terms of your supply chain or leave in a better state than before? That is maybe one of your problems that you might be looking to solve now. Yeah, I mean, I think like the the elephant in the room is that we ship from Los Angeles, California, and our farm is in Erode, India, right? Mm -hmm. So um, whether we ship fabric or we ship finished goods um, from India to LA, that's a that's a big carbon footprint for an airplane, right? Um, and so, you know, I, ideally. My dream is I, I actually went up with Marin, our director of regenerative practices up to Button Willow. And we were looking at this 10 acre farm up there that is kind of a test farm. It's, it's like um, a bunch of different agencies have like donated some money to it to figure out if they could grow regenerative cotton on this land. Now that, that particular plot of land, it looks a lot like the top of my head, like big bald spots. It's, it's like, it's chemical heavy. It's not, it's not very good land. Um, and uh, they're struggling to grow anything there right now. Um, but that being said, um, as we grow, I would love to have a, a, a large portion of the land that we steward be local, right? Like I can't really throw a football to Button Willow. It's a two hour drive from here, but you know, I feel like I could in my mm -hmm. head and that's my backyard. And when we went up there, when Marin and I went up there, we were shocked. Like that's the, the I-5 of California. It's the, the, the thorough, you know, the heart the vein, the main artery, I should say, of, of, of California, like the breadbasket. And I'd never really been onto any of the farms right off the five, but there are cannons going off every 30 seconds or two minutes to keep the birds from landing on the pistachio trees and eating them. They, it's chemical everywhere. They were defoliating the cotton in the, in the you know, 400 acre plot next door to the farm we were on as we were there. So it was like 
crazy amounts of chemicals in the air. The sunsets were gorgeous because of all the pollution. Um, <laughs> and the earth itself was um, really devoid of life. Mm-hmm. And it was heartbreaking to know that this is like two hours north. This is right in my backyard, right? So I think for me personally, I would love it if we could have a good portion of the cotton that we grow be in our backyard, be in the state. Um, and that's that's really just a resource question of developing enough resources to begin to grow it here because we need to have weaving and, and, and figure out a, a, a scalable vegetable dye situation. So there's a lot of questions there, but I, I think really the, you know, I think that's an opportunity for us to explore down the road. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. Um, and then I guess going back to what we were talking about a bit earlier <laughs> and my love of a bargain, um, as you were saying, you know, if a dress is under $50, then it's a good chance that it's been, um, you know, ex- extraction and exploitation somewhere. Do you think that regenerative fashion and you know, kind of fair trade, caring fashion is just a privilege of the rich. How how can we expand it more so that people from lower incomes might be able to enjoy and benefit from it reciprocally? Yeah, so I think there's, there's I mean, it's a big question, right? Um, I think you have to look at the systems, fast fashion, fast food, high quality food, high quality made pieces, right? Um, the irony of fast fashion and fast food is that it destroys systematically good paying jobs. It destroys the middle class effectively. It turns um, people into poor people. And the only way to keep it going is to offer these things so cheaply that you give the illusion that people have choice right? But when you go to an H&M, you are effectively continuing the enslavement of an entire lower class of people and your, and yourself, really. I mean, now we're all accustomed to this. So like, if I'm not getting paid properly, it's okay because I can buy this, this dress made from slavery that I can afford, right? I, and I know that simplifies it. And I'm not here to shame anybody that buys from H&M or from Zara, from these places where fast fashion is happening. But what I would encourage people to do is say like, okay, I can't change all my habits because I can't afford it. That's the reality of it, right? Like people, they cannot afford it and that's real and they got to feed their families and, and that comes first. But now let's just say this, if I'm going to buy 10 pieces from Zara over the course of the year or H&M, why don't I instead buy nine pieces and save that money. And even if it's over the course of three years, it takes me to buy something that was made with reciprocity stitched into it. That's a 10% hit to the bottom line of Zara. Mm -hmm. And yes, I'm just one person and maybe my one little drop doesn't mean a lot, but if we all did it, it would make a big impact. So slowly begin to wean yourself and maybe next year, instead of just buying nine by eight, and then the next year, maybe buy seven and wean yourself off of that addiction And then really, like, I think that, you know, that's the first thing. And then I think the second question is just like our overconsumption in general, right? Like, do we really need 10 new pieces of clothes every year? No, we don't. Very few people do, right? Like clothes are meant to keep us warm. And if they're a matter of expression, like how about that expression be an expression of mindfulness um, 
and like real care for the planet. And again, I'm not here to shame anybody for any of their choices, but I just think these are like opportunities for us to, to think about ourselves and, and the power that we all have as, as citizens, right? How we choose to consume will impact the decisions that H&M and Zara make. Now, that being said, for Christy Dawn, right? Right now, the vast majority of our pieces are sewn in LA. Um, we will never make our factory any smaller. We'll never like send any of our jobs overseas. We will always take care of the people that work at Christy Dawn. But as we grow, as we expand, we are looking to, and we currently do work with Oshadi and, and we're, we've set up a cut and sew there, but the cost to cut and sew there and pay people a really good standard living, right? A, a standard of living is actually, we can pay people a lot less per hour there and give them a better standard of living than we can pay them here in LA, mm -hmm. right? But that means that we can get that dress made for cheaper. And if we can get that dress made for cheaper without sacrificing quality or any of our ethos or value of the way we think about our reciprocal relations with people, then that means that we can offer that dress for less money. And if we can offer that dress for less money, we can pull more people in because it is a barrier to entry. And I understand why people don't buy sustainably or they don't buy, I mean, if you're not buying regeneratively, it just means right now you're not buying Christy Dawn, but you know, that, that hopefully that, that, that conversation gets bigger than just Christy Dawn. And I get it. I totally understand it. Um, and I think it's just going to take some time, you know, uh, to, to really, to get there. And then, and then, I'll, and I think like my last kind of thought to that is that, um, you know, what, when you, I heard you say like, if it's $50, you can pretty much be guaranteed extraction exploitation is, is sewn into it. If it's a dress, you can pretty much guarantee extraction and exploitation has been sewn into it. Forget the price. If it's a piece of clothing, that's just like the, the raw numbers, right? The vast majority of apparel that is cut and sewn is done through extraction and exploitation. Like, and, and it's not just for the fashion industry. We have normalized extraction and exploitation. In fact, we've made heroes. The better you can extract, the better you can exploit, the bigger the hero. We've made it so that that is the aim, right? That's the goal. And we've just normalized it. And without shaming ourselves, what happens when we bring in, without shaming the extractor and the exploiter, without shaming anybody, what happens when we bring them into the fold and we kind of embrace each other and say, you know, it's not working. It hurts too much. Yeah. It hurts our brothers and sisters. It hurts the land too much. Like maybe it's time for a change. And we, and we sit together and, and we embrace with our hearts and we communicate our pain. And we say, you know what? There's no bad person here. There's just bad systems. We all belong here. I think I'm starting, well, definitely in researching for this podcast, I am starting to awaken my consciousness, as you said earlier. And the thing that is frustrating is when I had a look at, um, for example, Primark's website and they, you know, have their statement about corporate social responsibility and our ambitious commitment, Primark cares. You think, oh, no, look, it's great. Of course they are doing all these things and um, they are wanting to be sustainable. And then you go to their store and you see these um, signs everywhere saying sustainable, organic. But then when you really look into it, you see that their commitment is to uh, endeavor to pay a living wage by 2030. And it's just like, seeming mean, nine years from now, you're going to wait nine years and you're only going to try to do it. 
And then when you have a look further and see the list of factories that they work with, it's 80 pages long of all these different companies across the world. And you just think, oh, wow, this is, yeah. If you, if you just look at it on, on glance, you might think, oh, no, I can allay my uh, conscience by continuing to buy from them. But actually, it's really not the case. Yeah, it's daunting. It's a, it's a daunting task. And, and um, I'm not here to condemn any other companies, but I would say like to have compassion, to think about like, all right, if I am the buyer, if I am the operations manager, or if I'm the CEO, I'm beholden to the shareholder. And it's really scary in those positions, mm-hmm. right? Um, how can I make this change? And it's not going to have a big impact to the bottom line. In fact, it might have an impact in the wrong way. And so you realize that these are, these are big questions and, and it's, it, it's human beings making these choices and they're hard choices. And, and how can we support change? And there's a lot of ways change happens, you know, in, in, in the culture that we have today, there's a lot of cancel culture, mm. right? And, and I think that just leads to more trauma personally, um, and then more things to heal. So how do we hold space and have compassion for the challenges that humans face within other corporate settings? And then how do we also move forward, right? It's, it's hard um, and uh, without condemning other people. And I think for us, the answer is show the way. And I don't think there's a way, I think there's multiple ways, but show a way, right? Yeah. And do it transparently. And so then people can copy and paste or people can, can, can iterate on it and do it better than we're doing it, you know? But what we need is we need people to, like, I think we need people to wake up to the power they have, Yes. right? The power of the pound, the power of the dollar, wherever, whatever country you are, power of the peso, <laughs> right? And, and say, hey, with this choice I make, I am either stewarding healing or I am ushering in more pain and more destruction, right? And it's and not that it's that black and white, but they have that power. We all have that power. Kind of is that black and white, really. Because if the companies are after profit and the things that we do uh, can take away that profit, then it, it pretty much is black and white. Like we do. Yeah, there's power there, right? There's there's power in that, right? And, and I think there's value in profit. Like I think pr- there should be profit too. Like in any regenerative system, like if we just were to, to kind of don't think about it as money, but just think about it as, as benefit right? Everyone should benefit theoretically from a regenerative reciprocal relationship, right? And so profit's an okay thing. It's just, where is it on the totem of importance? So I'm going to switch track a little bit and just ask about, um, and I, I liked what you were saying earlier about water on the seed of my childhood idealism. But when you think about your personal relationship with the environment and the natural world, what does it mean to you? Like, are there any sort of specific um, images or stories or things that come to mind when you reflect on your personal relationship? It's an ever evolving thing. I'm learning, I'm learning. And I feel like uh, I have a lot to learn and I have a lot to unlearn and um, I have a lot to shed, you know, uh, uh, the extractor and the exploiter um, live strongly in me still. And so I just, it's an ever evolving process, but learning how to release the shame and embrace myself for all 
of the parts, right? Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if I have any specific stories with nature that I would share, but um, I just, I, I would really want to say like, giving ourselves a lot of grace. Nature is incredibly forgiving and maybe we could learn a thing or two from that, you know? Mm. Is there a particular like time where you have learned to give yourself grace for something that you have done in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just in, in running a business, right? Like we have investors and it's a growing business. It's challenging to have a business. I never imagined how challenging it would be to grow a business, but I've made mistakes along the way, right? Um, and instead of having shame around that, hey, look at what, what this did to the bottom line, this mistake, giving myself the permission to just learn. And like, no, this is how you learn. You had to make that mistake, right? It's even like our first launch of Farm to Closet. We, we mixed the regenerative cotton with peace silk. And that's silk that is extracted from silkworms without harming them. So uh, it, it made the dresses much more expensive. So kind of our, our target price point where we can you know, pay everyone well and and still have the margin we need to continue our company is, is between 200 and $300. That's like a three times margin, very small in our industry, by the way, we have a very small markup. Um, and then there is uh, our farm to closet, which was between 300 and 500, because we used that fabric that I just described, we, we added that piece silk. Um, well, we basically like our core customers used to 200, 300, and here we launched farm to closet and the price point, even though we didn't like add any markup, we were so into it and we learned like, oh man, you know what? Like that, those, those higher price point dresses, like our customer's not ready for that. And so, it, it, you know, you're like, oh, I'm, we made a mistake. Embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, like any regenerative system, now we're going to improve on it. Right. So the next farm closet, we know, okay, we know where our kind of our, our parameters are that we can operate in. So I guess like it's little things, it's big things, but um, I think I look at nature and I think she can teach us everything, you know? Like, look how abundant she is. Look at a pomegranate. Like a pomegranate, I don't know if that you have pomegranates where you are. I have one in my fridge right now. <laughs> it fucking blows me away. <laughs> Open a pomegranate and look at how many, there's like 600 seeds in a pomegranate, right? Each one of those seeds get out. <laughs> has a code of life. And if you plant that seed, it has the possibility to germinate and become a tree and then give you 50 or 100 pomegranates every year with 600 seeds. Like what an amazing, abundant story, right? Like nature is abundant. We belong here. We are all indigenous to planet Earth. This is our planet, right? We all come from, per our conversation before we started recording about where we all come from, we all come from Earth centered earth worshiping people we all there are indigenous people all over the world including europe right and that's all of our histories and if we can remember that remember who we are that we belong here release the shame about being here and say oh my god this is my home and once it's your home of course you'll sweep the floor of course you'll do the dishes of course you'll take care of your home right? Like this is yours. This is mine. This is ours. It's so beautiful. 
So I'm just looking at the time now and seeing that I'm a terrible podcast host because I've enjoyed our conversation so much, but I have a few more um, questions. So one of the things, just to let you know, and we can absolutely stop on the hour if you need to, but one of the things that I like to do on the podcast is to invite guests uh, at their option completely to take on a challenge that is in line with what the environment means to them and from you I'm hearing that it is um, this learning this taking care of um, and it's just um, one way to kind of do something that you might have been thinking about doing but not kind of got around to it yet in your personal life or I guess it could be in you know your Christy Dawn um, work but just to to act on something and then to come back and say well I did this thing and this is what I found and um, to to share that experience so I don't know if there is anything <laughs> that comes to mind for you or if you have to leave in one minute and have to go that's fine yeah, I don't know if there's anything that comes to mind. I mean, I feel like perhaps it might be making a weekly offering to the redwood tree in my backyard. Okay. Um, I, I really want to commune more deeply with the plant spirits. And um, I think I, I, I've always had that, but I've just never really sat and taken the time to sit with that tree in my backyard who speaks to me sometimes. And maybe I should be more kind of proactive and sitting with her and um and making an offering to her every week so maybe that's what I'll take on I know that's weird so no it's not weird and uh, maybe if you would be willing to um come back and talk about your experience about what that was like I'd like to learn a little bit more about uh this plant spirit com com communal relationship that you have that I'm guessing is coming from your um you know your role and you're identifying yourself as a land steward no i think I, this isn't really like I, I i identify the company as a land steward i myself don't identify as a land steward but i do think we all are stewards of life i think inside of each of one are the, the codes of life is you know like um and even more sacredly in in our women right um the ability to bring life forward and so each one of us is stewarding those sacred codes. The, the, the DNA that we carry is old, it's ancient, you know? Um, and I think sometimes we forget just how special we are and that we are the stewards and that we're only passing through and then we're gonna hand it to the next generation for them to steward for the next. And like that, you know, hopefully for a much longer time. So do you think that might be something then that you would be willing to try? Maybe, I don't know, you can put a time scale on it. You said like once a week, you could do it for... Yeah, I, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna sit with I'm gonna sit with the redwood in our backyard. My son calls her calls her Scarlet, so I'm gonna sit with Scarlet once a week and make a little offering. Maybe bring her some food and water every every time I go out there. Some fruit. That sounds amazing. And do you think you would be willing to just come back on the podcast and just share how that went and and what you learned? Depends how it goes. <laughs> Depends how it goes. <laughs> Well, that's fair enough, but um, I, I would like to definitely like have you back on and just learn a bit more about if you, <laughs> even if it didn't go as well, there's, I think, uh, as you were saying, in every problem, you know, there's a solution waiting to be found. So maybe if it doesn't go as well as you think for every reason, then there's a reason behind that, that um, we could talk about and dig into. Very true. Yes, I, I, I agree. I, I will come back. 
that would be amazing so do you think um once a week when would be a, a time to schedule so that you have had sufficient times to commune with Scarlett? Gosh, I think let's let's think about like uh, spring of next year, spring 2022. OK. I would love to have you back then and learn more about Christy Dawn and the work. I'm sure you've done loads more exciting things and uh, how your personal relationship with Scarlett is. That would be amazing. Sounds good. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Iris. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and learning about um, your company, your values. And I think it's so exciting because you've just created this system that is so different from everything that we have. And as you say, that reciprocal relationship, that caring is built in every stitch. And I think it's a real model for um for fashion and for other things going forward. So really, really inspiring. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed being here. <laughs> what a fantastic episode. I so enjoyed talking to Aris and learning about him, his work, his values, and how it all started off very differently. You know, he said he wasn't an environmental activist. Um, he just made decisions that he thought were good for business bottom lines. And now this beautiful serendipitous journey of connection and kindness has happened. And I think that's so, so stunning and so inspiring. Please, please do check out their website, christydawn.com and read through, read through all their blogs. Honestly, they're fascinating. They've got some amazing um, information. As I mentioned about the farm journey, you can have a look through step-by-step step what happened, what it looks like, who the people are who work on the farm. It just brings everything to life. It really helps you reconnect with the things that you are wearing rather than just buying it from a shop, you know, on a hanger and having basically no connection to it. So that's christydawn.com. I will absolutely put those links in the show notes. So I actually wanted to do an episode on fashion for ages when I started this podcast, but um, what's the phrase? Blissful ignorance. <laughs> I was living in blissful ignorance and enjoying uh, putting off not knowing until I kind of realized I have to start knowing. And I think um, it's a defense mechanism, isn't it? When you hear Aras talk about extraction and exploitation is pretty much weaved into every stitch. Like it, you have to do something to protect your, your precious self, your precious identity from thinking that what you do is harmful to the planet and other people. But I'm really, really pleased that we dived into this topic and kind of laid it bare um, giving giving you the facts, giving me the facts. And now it's up to, to you to make a decision about what you do with that information. I think particularly fashion more than other things like um, emissions, it feels much more direct in terms of um, exploitation, extraction, resource waste. When I think about driving my car, the emissions that go up into the air cause general warming, which may cause any number of effects of um, heat waves or um, floods or who knows, you know, it could be 
anything that kind of contributes indirectly to problems, climate problems that we're facing. But fashion is very much, this is the cloth, this is how it's made, and this is the processes in which it's made. And, and you can see where the unkindness is. You can see where the exploitation is. And so um, I think it's really powerful for me. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a background information, I guess, about me and my um, relationship with fashion. So when I was growing up, I was given some money to stay in school because we were part of a low income household. And I think I got 30 pounds a week, which was actually loads. Like, that's amazing. And I remember spending all my money on clothes, which I would just spend it on food. Now, if I'm given 30 pounds a week, it would be takeaways and restaurants and all sorts. But um, yeah, I, I spent ages thinking about what clothes am I going to wear, cutting different outfits out of magazines. Um, and I very much had this well, I guess it's what society kind of breeds into you without really realizing if I look like this and if I have this certain capsule wardrobe, then my life will be so much better and I'll attract the perfect boyfriend and da 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 da. So I spent loads of money on clothes, loads of money like H&M trying to um, get my look, make myself feel unique and beautiful and special. And then uh after, well, at university, I didn't have any money, so I didn't really do any shopping. Um, and then at uh, after university, I went to Australia for a year, traveling around. And that really changed my relationship with clothes because I had to pick things that fitted in a very big rucksack, but, you know, rucksack nevertheless. And um, a lot of the times, those things that I picked when I was in Australia were the ones that were clean. So it was no longer like, oh, which best suits my personality today? How am I going to express myself? It was like, ah, oh, what's the T-shirt that doesn't smell too bad because I haven't been bothered to go into my laundry? And that experience really um, made my relationship with clothes much more functional. I think I still enjoy trying to, you know, look nice or wear things that I think reflect my style. But now it's much more like, well, I have to buy some clothes. So I'll spend as little money as possible, as little time as possible. And actually, I'm not really going to spend a great deal thinking about, you know, my personal brand or anything like that. Just I'll have a wander around the shops. And if there are things that I like, I'll just buy it if I need to. Um, and that's pretty much where I've been for the last, well, my God, how long has it been since I went to Australia? 11 years. Wow. Um, because I didn't want to spend that much money. Sometimes I did shop at charity shops, mainly because I love a bargain. And you sometimes get some really cool things there that you would never see uh, or be able to afford in other shops. Um, but also I shopped a lot in Primark, um, you know, H&M, things that were really cheap because I just, clothes are expensive, right? I feel so wrong spending my hard earned money and it is so hard earned on buying things to keep me warm or make me look good. So I was always trying to find that sweet spot between looking good, feeling good, not spending too much money, which meant I was Primark's biggest fan. <laughs> um, and it was very much a denial 
that these things don't happen in the world today. Of course, Primark are looking after their staff and the people who make clothes for them. You know, like I said on the episode, I looked up their corporate social responsibility and on first glance, it does look very reasonable. But when you dig into it, it's really not. And it's really not acceptable. And um, since I started researching this episode and learning more about the industry and practices, I'm pretty sure, I mean, never say never, but I'm pretty sure I won't be shopping in Primark again um, for clothes because I just can't, I just cannot contribute to those people's profits when they are so derived from disgusting means. I just can't. So instead, I have been looking in charity shops um, or secondhand stores. And I've also uh, found this amazing app called Vinted, which is like um, eBay, I guess, but just for all secondhand clothes. And it's really good because you can search for things. They can be newly bought as in never worn or somewhat worn. And also you can get some really great bargains as well. So I feel like I still be wearing Primark if it's secondhand, but at least that choice is not then um, contributing or giving that information to the CEOs of Primark, that board of directors that I am supporting their business and their practice because I'm not. You know, we don't have much power as consumers, but we do have some power and I choose to exercise it that way. Well. I'm going to stop yabbering on there, but I hope you have enjoyed that episode. And um, I would be so grateful if you took the time to have a little reflection on your own personal fashion habits and relationship to fashion. Um, Of course, if you wanted to let me know your thoughts about this episode and your own behavior and whether there's anything that surprised you, then do drop me a message. I'm on Instagram at Untethered. Twitter at Ali Untethered, um, Facebook, This Sustainable Life Untethered, and I'd love to hear from you. Oh, and I forgot to say, actually, I'm going to put in the show notes a really, really good documentary that I enjoyed that's on YouTube. That's called The True Cost of Fashion. And it's, um, yeah, just gives a really good insight into how the fashion industry works. And do, do check out Christy Dawn. Again, those links will be in the show notes. I hope you have a really fabulous day today. Thank you so much for spending your precious time listening to me and I will see you next time.